2: Thanks for having me, Cheryl. It's good to be here.
0: Yeah, no, I'm really excited because, you know, we usually don't podcast authors every year because nothing changes usually, (laughs) but not for you, right? I mean, you know, write a debut fiction book, it sells its socks off, and now you've got another one.
2: Yeah. (laughs) That's
0: a lot in one year, right?
2: Yeah, it's been, it's been very I don't know whether whirlwind or roller coaster. I haven't decided which is the best way to describe it, especially with COVID stuff alongside it, especially having the, the day job I've got anyway, the success of the bluffs no one expected getting another book out within 12 months. Like it's just been, it's been pretty good. It's just been- Do
0: you know, our conversation last time was largely around, you know, writing a debut fiction novel. And at the time we didn't know it was going to be a bestseller, but also too, you'll remember this, you were one of our very first authors that did the live segment on a Wednesday night with your cat on your lap. And so, you had all the challenges of releasing a fiction book in lockdown, and that was just so unusual, right? Now you're releasing your second.
2: <laughs> yeah, COVID. yeah. much
0: has changed for you?
2: I mean, we've still got a tour scheduled, but I yeah. doubt it's going to happen. It's just devastating, but it is what it is. There's not much you can do about it. I was thinking this morning as I was just thinking about our conversation about when I did that that live segment and the comments wouldn't work for me and I had to like Call you on the phone, and, and it was just. <laughs> <laughs> now I really feel for authors. They're so,
0: you know, they've got the the task of writing, like yourself. You know, you're writing. You've got a job, and then you have to learn tech stuff and social media stuff. And you know, it's another added level. I think people say, "Oh, you know, at least you do, you're not out on tour." But it's not that simple. You know, there's so many other things you've got to attend to. Anyway, let me introduce you, and uh, and we'll get in. We'll get right in into it. Kyle is a drug and alcohol counsellor and an author based in Hobart. He grew up in the wild Tasmanian bush. His debut novel, which we just talked about, The Bluffs, was so well-loved and received, not only by the Better Reading community, but by everyone else, by readers all over the country. It was shortlisted for the Dimmick's Book of the Year and the Indies' debut fiction book of the year. So he's got another one. It's called The Deep. It is a gripping mystery about modern day pirates and drug kingpins set in the Tasmanian landscape. Okay. So we've got The Deep and then we had The Bluffs and both of them are set really not far from where you live. Talk to me about
2: that. Yeah. So it's funny that when The the Bluffs came out, something that everyone commented on was The Landscape. And at the time, I was really happy to speak about it. But then the more that it, it kept getting asked and I didn't realise how, I guess, not not rare, but like it was a point of difference. Yeah. Then I started looking at like other novels and I was thinking, yeah, actually, the landscape does feature pretty heavily. Like I just didn't realise it. Now I know myself a bit better and I know that, uh, you know, as a Tasmanian, the bush is in our blood, especially for me. I'm from like a tiny country town so when it comes to my creativity i'm always i'm always reaching for the landscape in a way i'm always kind of anchoring i always anchor myself in the landscape and so it made sense to me to anchor um, my stories and my characters with that same connection to place with the deep i really wanted to explore the ocean, because the ocean's a massive love of mine. Like I've got a whole ocean tattoo that covers my whole leg. Growing up on an island, growing up by the beach, you know, it's it's pretty. It's just always there. Like you know, nearly every day I'd see the ocean. So I wanted to explore that in um in the deep. And because Tassie's got these amazing um, sea cliffs and great seaside geology on uh, the the Tasman Peninsula, I was like, yep, I want to go there because that gives me a great opportunity to spend a lot of time there as well. Mm. <laughs> I never really spent a whole lot of time on the neck, the, yeah. the uh, neck.
0: Talk to me about modern day pirates. Like what kind of research did you do to get to here? Because really it's it's something obviously I'm not familiar with, so I want to know more.
2: Yeah, look, the modern day pirates is around criminal underbelly of Tasmania. So the piracy in the book is around things like drug smuggling, extortion, racketeering, a lot of like even body disposal. And so then with that comes the the danger of being out on the ocean with these characters. And then you also find that some drug crews identify a lot with pirate codes. In a way, a lot of a lot of people who who live in, and exist in the in the underworld follow a code of some description. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of piracy elements <laughs> that come into that.
0: Can you explain that a bit more to me? Give me an example.
2: An example of okay, so one of the codes is um, women and children are off limits. Mm. So if something's going to happen, you don't. If you're going to go to the house, for example, like I. I Had a client that I was speaking with, and he was up to his eyeballs in drug debt. So there was some um, other gentlemen who came to his house and did him some damage. But they made sure to bring another woman to look after the kids while he was (laughs) being.
0: Oh wow!
2: So they're like, okay, we're going to come deal with you, but we're not monsters. We'll make sure we look after your kids while we do it. Or uh, one of my friends um, used to be very high up in the drug. Drug dealing world, and he used to. If he went to a house again, he'd um, almost let them know ahead of time that he was coming, and that the women and children could get out of there, so they didn't have to see it. Mm-hmm. Another one is they've got a real honour when it comes to not telling anything to the cops. Mm-hmm. So even if you you know been damaged, even if you know if you you get you get hurt in a really bad way, um, and you're going to be in cr- on crutches for the rest of your life. You're still not going to tell the cops who did it. Mm. Yeah. Even if they deserve to go away, you're still never going to tell the cops. They have this, um, they call it being staunch. Mm. So yeah, those they're just a couple of the codes. People I mean, people dip in and dip out, right? They sometimes I'll follow them. Sometimes, you know, if they're really if their mental health has taken a really blow, big blow thanks to drug psychosis or drug addiction sometimes they'll you know they'll flip or they'll turn but generally everyone follows those those kind of codes Mm.
0: you draw so much in your books from your personal experience don't you Mm. talk to me about that because you kind of live a dual life don't you you're working and you're working in an area that's incredibly interesting but also difficult and then you you in a way you're writing about that as well aren't you
2: yeah, for sure. I mean, my when I was writing The Deep, especially, I was the whole time, literally the whole time I was writing that book, I was a drug and alcohol counselor in a um in a drug and alcohol rehab. And it was it's known as one of the hardest rehab programs in Australia. And we had some really, really tough characters come through. And I my job was to sit down with them. Get to know them. Get to know their world. Get as inside their skin as possible to help them come up with a strategy to get out, basically. And during that process, that was I was doing that three days a week, and then writing for the rest of the time. But I almost found that I'd, I'd work Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. I'd almost need the whole day off just to recover, just based on the trauma I was listening to the, the this horrific. I'd hear a torture story every Tuesday. Mm. What writing did for me was I found myself really building relationships with some of these guys, not, not necessarily my clients, but more um, people I was working with as colleagues who, who had lived experience in this area and um, friends that they'd put me in contact with. Um, I had one of my colleagues who came around to my place one night, you know, we had a meal, had some drinks, and then he just unloaded about what it's like living with drug psychosis, which is when you have a voice in your ear every day, you know, just telling you stuff. And I wanted to explore that in my writing because I found it so fascinating. And I, I, I had to, I almost had to justify to myself that there's a reason I'm doing this job, because mm-hmm. if I didn't have my writing as an outlet, um, it would have been very hard to get through the week, I think.
0: Mm. It all sounds very hard to start with. So tell me about what an ordinary day looks for you in terms of writing.
2: So on a writing day, so yeah. So they're
0: separate.
2: Yeah, they're, they're separate because by the time I get home from work, I'm pretty yeah. knack. Sometimes I've got stuff, I can do it, but most days I just wait until my writing day. Uh, it's had to, I've had to change how my writing days looked because before I would um, I'd wake up, wake up late, I'm not a morning person, Stumble in the shower, about mid-morning close to lunch, I'd grab my laptop, put in my backpack and head out the door. And what I'm doing is I'm trying to find my my station for that day. Where am I going to sit myself? And I think better when I've got natural settings around me and also when there's a lot of people. So it's it's not always easy to find those sweet spots which have good natural settings and lots of people. Luckily in Tassie there's quite a few. So I go out and I'll find a cafe and I'll sit myself up and then I'll start rereading what I've done. I'll start thinking ahead. My current book I'm writing, I'm actually trying to plot for the first time ever.
0: Is that Are they the post-it notes behind you? They
2: are the post-it notes, yeah.
0: <laughs> don't worry, I can't read them. I can see them, but I can't read them. I'll just describe them to our listeners. There is, oh, I don't know, at least 20 or 30 post-it notes behind you in some kind of family tree-like setting, isn't it? On yeah. A or is that a wall?
2: It's, it's a wall and it's yeah. going- Linear that way. So there's, yeah. three, there's three colours and then yep. three characters. So, so it's, it's the,
0: colour-coded as well.
2: Yes, yeah, the yeah. character arc from beginning to end.
0: Okay, so when I spoke to you last year, it was the first, right? Tell me about your expectations of that time and how it transpired and then I want to talk about the pressure of having to go back and write a second.
2: So... No one expected the Bluffs to be as successful as it was. I mean, you hope, especially coming into COVID, mm. <laughs> straight into lockdown.
0: Straight into lockdown.
2: So I, I kind of set it out into the world and um, and waited to see what would happen. What I found is that the the writing community, the reading community is such, it's such a bustling, thriving culture. And, and I'll tell you this, you, haven't, you probably haven't received the actual copy of the DB yet, but in my acknowledgements, I thank you.
0: Oh, no, I haven't seen that. Thank you.
2: I thank you and I thank you and the Better Reading community because I know that, that the groundswell of support I got from, from, from you and your team and, and the Better Reading community shot me on my trajectory and that built momentum, you know, and so you think that books exist in a vacuum, but they don't. You know, they, they engage with people and then people engage with other people and then those people engage with the book. It's a, it's a people, it's a human amongst humans situation. So that was that was great and I love that because I'm such a people person anyway, so that was like one of the greatest benefits. I loved Bookstagram especially. Um, like I just, you know, I got so many reviews and comments through Instagram. It really just opened my eyes to everyone out there, everyone will comment on their staff, everyone will share each other's posts.
0: Let me stop you there. I just want to make this comment because I I, I just came to mind while you were saying that. I've been in the book business for a really long time, too long (laughs) probably. But anyway, back before social media, and I know there's a lot of criticism and there's a lot of negatives about social media, but when I look at the reading community, it's largely positive. But back when you We didn't have social media. We relied on the reviews in the newspapers. We relied on the reviews of the reviewers. And, you know, largely they were, a lot of them were males, you know, white men. And that was the opinion. That was the only opinion we were getting about books and reading for years and years in print media. And what I have loved about social media is that's still there. But now, for you as an author, you can connect firsthand with a reader. It's so special, isn't it? Yeah. And that's yeah. what happened with you. They loved it. They love the book. And then they fell in love with you.
2: It was like even like people would message me and they'd be like, Oh, can you answer this question? And I'd be like, Yeah, I'd love to answer that question. And then they're like, Why? I can't believe you replied. And I'm thinking, man, this is this is this is cool. Like I'm enjoying the Honestly, there's a bit of pressure because as a as a writer, you don't expect yourself to matter that much. Like you think the book exists and you, you just go and write another book, but no, everyone wants to talk to you, everyone wants you involved, everyone wants your input. And it's it's cool. It's it's pretty it can be disconcerting though, because you're not trained. You don't you just get jumped lumped right into it. Like you know, hey, hope, hopefully you know how to do public speaking because now you've got to do it. Like hopefully you know how to, you know, manage hundreds of messages coming into your inbox because now you've got to manage that. Like, it was overwhelming. It was definitely overwhelming, but I loved it. It was like a, um, I think rollercoaster is a good word because you just, you, you hang on and and hope for the best. And luckily, yeah, we, we got the best thanks to the community.
3: Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right?
0: So very often, writers get writer's block after a debut fiction novel that is successful. I mean, that does happen. There's lots of writers I can think that that's happened to. And, you know, rightly so, the pressure to write a book as good as your first is very, very difficult, I think. Had you started your, I can't remember whether you'd started your second, and how did you respond?
2: Yeah, i had started it, but I hadn't got that far. I kind of what I was writing wasn't working, so I had to do a lot of reworking. It was extremely difficult, that ex- expectation, extremely mm. difficult. Like I, luckily I've got a good supports in my life and because I'm trained in, in counselling, I, I know how to regulate my emotions so I could I could see when I was starting to spiral. But one of, something I got time and time again was at the end of reviews, especially on Instagram, it would say, can't wait for the next book. And as a writer that's exactly what you want to hear. But at the same time, it's so unhelpful (laughs) because now it's like, oh man, what if I can't deliver? So I didn't get writing block. I don't, thankfully, I've never had an issue with that. Um, Hopefully I never do. But the expectation to deliver a good product was pretty paralyzing for a good while to the point where I was, you know, as I sent off, the manuscript, as I was like, you know, giving out the, the advanced copies to people, I was like, look, it's not going to be as good as The Bluffs because I didn't have as long to write it. Like I had all these excuses why it wasn't going to be as good as The Bluffs. And then, honestly, I think basically unanimously, all the feedback back from the deep is that it's better than The Bluffs. So I don't know how that happened. I have no idea what I did.
0: It kind of makes sense in a way, Kyle, because it's practice, right? You write one book and then you write a second. And in theory, it should be better,
2: shouldn't it? Well, I guess. I think I equated to time spent on it versus it would be, would it, would, um, you know, there's a formula of the time I spent on this book would equal a better product. And with the bluffs, like it was a long, slow haul, whereas the deep was like rapid fire. So I guess in my mind, I thought, there's no way this would be as good. And it's so different too. And I thought all my readers loved, you know, the teenage girls element, the social media element, the, you know, the mountain element. They're not going to like male drug dealers on the Tasmanian coast. So I, I don't know. I, I I'm not I'm not a pessimist. I'm ext- like I'm a very optimistic person. I was just trying to be realistic and pragmatic. And yet, yeah, it came back that. I guess the practice like you're talking about, I guess having people believe in me for the first time when I wrote the bluffs, no one knew I was even wanting to be a writer whereas I could write the deep saying to myself I'm a best selling author, you know, <laughs> like mm-hmm. I guess all of that came together in a way I didn't see until I got the feedback.
0: Did you learn anything from the first experience to the second? Like are there things that you've thought, well, wow, this has been useful? knowing that I've done it before, or, or this is like, you know, definitely I won't be doing that again. Did Was there anything like that?
2: 100%. And I'm finding that also with book three is that with the deep, I submitted my first draft, which was only 60,000 words, which is, you know, the final draft comes in 140,000 words. Mm. So it was only half, but that was okay because I knew so much was going to get changed. So I'm like, okay, well, I'll submit this because I know that it's going to get edited anyway so rather than spending an extra two months tailoring stuff fixing stuff up getting it to the best version of itself I thought no I've got a team now I've got a publisher an editor I've got other people you know my agent can read this so that's changed the way I even view the third book where I think I'm not in isolation Um, I can kind of rather than pedantically going over the opening over and over again like I used to do I reckon I would spend 25% of my writing time on the opening three chapters. Mm. Whereas what I found with the deep and the bluffs is that the opening changed, like (laughs) almost to the final stages. So that is invaluable to me. Like that's 25% of my time I can save, just Mm. say, all right, there's my opening for now. I know it's going to change, but I'll wait till my publisher reads it.
0: Mm. It's interesting, you know, because I was being interviewed yesterday. I was talking to someone and they asked me what makes a good book. Now, of course, if I knew that, I'd, I wouldn't be talking to you, would I? <laughs> I'd be on a yacht somewhere in the Caribbean. But what I do think makes a book, good book and why it doesn't, didn't surprise me that the Bluffs did so well is when we get the magic between story and craft, and you talking about how much you put into the writing. I, I do think ultimately that matters. Yes, you might fine tune that for the next book, but I have read so many books where those two don't meet. It yeah. might be a really good idea and it's ex- executed poorly or it's really well written, but, you know, it's blah. And I think that's, you know, people often say to me, you know, what, what, what makes a book jump out? And it is definitely that because when that happens, me as a reader, that's it. I'm lost in that story. Nothing else exists and it's just me in the story. You're not even in it. The author I can't even see when I'm reading it. You know, it's the magic of that, I think.
2: That's really interesting. I've never thought of it that way. And I think as a writer, we've, writers have a massive blind spots to our craft. You know, we look at our work and we we'll just kind of see the, the issues with it. And so it's very hard to kind of get your craft right, but I guess that yeah, that makes sense. I know that when I'm reading, there's books. If I like a book, I'll read it every year. Mm. You know, I know it's going to happen. It's that the the rhythm of the words, the shape of the words, that you know, yeah, no, that makes the sense.
0: magic of the reading definitely. I mean, Tim Winton is that for me, without a doubt. He's somebody that sometimes I don't even care what the storyline line is, you know, because um, <laughs> you just love reading words. Actually, you know, when I, I recorded a podcast with him a few years ago, it was a career highlight, actually. But what I was really surprised about, I always think that I know there, everything there is to know about reading and writing. But he told me that he it's excruciating each sentence is written and rewritten and rewritten and the editorial process is you know changes and you know but as a reader and as it should it reads to me like he's written every single one of those words once and perfectly right yeah. that's how it should be you
2: know, they they say they say that um yeah easy reading is hard writing
0: yeah 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 absolutely i want to talk about how your world and your relationship, you know, with the bush, your relationship with the ocean gives your books a tremendous sense of place. I mean, as a matter of fact, they're characters in your books, aren't they? they? They're so strong. Do you think that that's going to be a theme that you stay with?
2: It's definitely a theme I'm sticking with for my third book. Yeah. I am wary of becoming predictable, I wow. think, as a, as, an, as a creative. I love, the, I love landscape. And I love the bush, um, but I also love cities. Like because I'm a people person, and and I, know, I probably know a bit more about cities than most with my line of work. So I would love to explore cities as well. What I um, need to, what, what what I'm really conscious of, is that I've got I've got fans now. I've got readers that want to read my books, and that's I, I take that very seriously. I take the fact that there are people who want a certain experience from my books. And and while I don't only want anything, I, I definitely want to honour people who, who are believing in me and, and who want to come back. I want to make sure that they get they get the experience that they're, that they're hoping for. So with that in mind, I'm still on the fence about whether I'm going to stick with um, the landscape, whether I'll stick with Tasmania. Like book three is going to be a landscape Tasmania book. Um, after that, I might have to try something different just to give my own creative juices that, A break. But the thing is, and what I've realized now is that landscape for me isn't, it's not like a a gimmick. (laughs) You know, it's actually, it's in, like you said, it's a character and it's ingrained. But I I think that I'll be able to achieve that with a different setting. Like I'd Hmm. love, love to set a book somewhere on the mainland.
0: I mean, look at Michael Connolly, for instance. I mean, he's written, you know, books set in LA for, you know, how many of those books is he written? And occasionally he de- deviates, but not, not often. I mean, you can stick to a theme because it's it's the storyline, but you can also do standalones, I think. I think readers are really I mean, your books are crime fiction, ultimately. That's the hook, isn't it?
2: Well, I think people people like stuff without even being aware that they like it. Yes. You know. It's the only one that's missing that they're like, Oh man, you know, where was that? What I discovered with writing is that for me, and I don't usually delve into this stuff, but there's definitely like an energy I've got to follow. Like I've got a sense where the energy of the book's going, and what I found is that if I try and force it away from where I feel like the book wants to go, then it falls apart. And when I signed the, you know, the four contracts, I just was this massive belief in me that oh yeah, of course they're all going to be Tassie wilderness books. You know, it was just. Was this natural for me? So I think that the energy of these stories inside of me wants to be ingrained in the landscape. I just just don't want to get too claustrophobic where I feel like, oh, man, like now I've written myself into this path and I can't get out of it.
0: Who's that in the background?
2: That is my (laughs) landlord's dog. Oh,
0: it's not your dog. Okay. (laughs) I was thinking cats, dogs, what else is in there? Um, Okay, tell me a little bit about The Deep before we finish up.
2: Okay, so The Deep... Is it's about a guy called Mac, and he is the outcast kind of younger son of a massive drug family in Tasmania. Now, Mac's trying to get his life back on track. He's moved back to the, the, his hometown of Shacktown. Um, he's on strict bail conditions. He's got like a nightly curfew. He's got to go to the cop station every morning to sign in, trying to get away from the, 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 the lore of the criminal underworld. However, the story begins with his cousin, Forrest, who's been missing for seven years. His 13-year-old cousin washes up on the beach. And so Forrest has been presumed dead for seven years. And so that's where the story begins. And it's essentially about Mac and his cousin Ahab, also from the town, trying to work out what's happened with Forrest, why has he come back, and what does this mean for us in the town? And then that's, that's where it begins, and then the story just rockets off, similar to the bluffs, just twists and turns all the way to the end as uh, we try and work out exactly what's going on in this town and what's going on with this family.
0: Beautiful characters. All right. Thank you so much for your time. Can you tell your neighbor's dog that, you know, sometimes people work <laughs> <laughs> and we need some peace and quiet? Um, my dog's just sitting on the bed there being very, very good. <laughs>
2: She loves to bark at possums at 2 a.m. It's great. It's a great time for me.
0: <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. Carl Perry, thank you so much. Always a pleasure speaking with you.
2: You too, Sherry. Thank you.
0: If you'd like more information about Better Eating, follow us on Facebook
1: or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio.